What is the chief end of man? What is the chief end of man? What's the chief purpose of man? The answer to that is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And we know that that's our chief end because God has given us a revelation of that in His Word. That's why we go here this morning to be illuminated and to be trained and to be edified and sanctified. It's so that we could magnify His greatness and His grace. So that's when we go to Philippians 2, verse 5 this morning to begin our reading. I'll be reading down to verse 16. Beginning in verse 5, we read that Paul wrote and said, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, slave, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out or cultivate your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. The Apostle Paul wants to glorify God in verse 16 on that day as the church manifests the greatness of God's grace through their lives because of Christ's sacrifice. That's what he's praying for. That's what he's desiring. That's why he's writing to the Philippians with this, this appeal to follow Christ's mindset in verse 5. He, he's moving from this command in verse 5 to an illustration in the verses 6 through 8 and then to a reaction that we see here in the text we just read. He, he expects that as the Philippians read this letter that he's writing from a Roman prison being persecuted for Christ's sake, he expects that the revelation of the death and the humiliation of Christ and the exaltation of Christ will produce a reaction in the saints. What's our reaction to this text? I mean, do we read this text and say, that's a beautiful text, it's wonderful. It tells us about Jesus' suffering. Or do we read that text and we say, this is absolutely astounding. God himself will take on human flesh and live our life and die our death so that we could magnify his life through our service, through our dedication, through our sanctification, through our witness as Christians. 
That's why he saved us. He saved us so we could magnify his grace and his greatness. And um, last week, I, I kind of hit on all those topics. We learned last week how God the Father reacted, number one, to Jesus' willful humiliation in verses 6 through 8. God reacted with exaltation because Jesus willfully humbled himself. So therefore, God exalted him to the highest position of all. And then we learned, secondly, that God the Father reacted to Jesus' joyful submission in his death by giving him the honor and recognition that he deserved. So he raised him up and he honored him. And then today, as we look at verses 11 to 16, we're going to learn that God the Father reacts to Jesus' eternal condition as Lord. God the Father reacts to Jesus' eternal condition as Lord with, number one, a glorious revelation in verse 11. And then as God's children, we should, we should see that and be amazed by that, and we should corporately react to this with active sanctification. That's what we see in verses 12 through 16. So God reacts to the eternal condition of Jesus, who has always been Lord, but humbled himself for a time to become our substitute. Yet he remained Lord and sovereign in all of that humiliation. And he came willingly and he submitted joyfully. And God is looking at this eternal condition of Christ and raising it up to the highest superlative. He is Lord. And as he declares that revelation, it is to move the church to active sanctification. That's what changes us as Christians. Rules and traditions don't change us. The revelation of God's grace in Christ transforms sinners into saints. And that's what the Apostle Paul is intending to do as he brings this letter to the Philippians. Let me give you again a little bit more of a detailed review of what we covered last week. In Philippians 2, 9a, the first half... We saw last week that God reacted to Jesus' humiliation, his willful humiliation with exaltation, when it says, therefore God has highly exalted him. He did so because Jesus, again, willfully came to earth as our substitute. He willfully made a way for sinners to be redeemed through his incarnation. The Lord of all became the lowest of all, to save the lowest of all. He came and He lived our life for us. And that was a willful humiliation on His behalf. And so when we look at this, we look at His willful humiliation in verses 6-8, through eight, it should transform or affect our manner of life personally. Our hearts should be transformed by His willful humiliation for us. And that should give evidence that we belong to Jesus by personally humbling ourselves as is illustrated in verses 1 and 2. See, if, if we see the humiliation of Christ, we see how he willfully humbled himself, we will willfully and joyfully humble ourselves to serve his people. We'll do that from the heart. Not because of a rule, not because strictly a command. See, Paul gives the command, but then he gives the illustration. Look what Jesus has done. Out of a response for Jesus' humiliation, we want to humble ourselves to care for those that Christ himself died for. We see that in 1 and 2 there of chapter 2. 
If there's any encouragement in Christ. So basically he says, look, since you have Christ and he humbled himself, and there's any comfort from this love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy. How? How do you complete Paul's joy? You do that by reflecting Jesus to the world. He says, by being of the same mind as Jesus, by having the same love as Jesus, by being in full accord with Jesus' desires, having one mind, he humbled himself willfully. Therefore, we should illustrate that. And we should live in light of what he's done for us joyfully. That's, that's what drives us to sanctification here. In verses 9b to 10, Last week we saw that God reacted to Jesus' joyful submission. He joyfully submitted himself to death, even death on a cross, a death that even the Apostle Paul could never legally die because he was a Roman citizen. Yet the Lord of glory died humbly and joyfully for sinners like us. He humbled himself. And God exalted him, and then God, out of his Grace toward His own Son, He bestowed on Him the name that is above every name. Verse 9b says, He gave Him honorable recognition. Jesus was not recognized for the Lord of glory when He walked upon the earth. Yet God the Father said, because He walked upon the earth, I will give Him honorable recognition. Verse 10 says, He does this because, so that, at the name of Jesus... Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Now last week we talked about what that name was. And the name is not his first name, Jesus. The name is his title, Lord, or Koryos. It's in verse 11. That's his title. It's at the name, the superlative name, the name that is above every name, the name that is authoritative, the name that distinguishes him as sovereign and deity. It's at that name that every knee should bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father who sent him to be our Savior. Every being will bow, it says in this text. Every being will bow in honor of Jesus' Lordship. All creation will bow before him. All creation will do homage to Jesus. All creation will give honor to Jesus as Lord because he is our creator and in particular he is the savior of sinners who humbled himself to become like us. Therefore he is worthy of all exaltation, all glorification, all praise and adoration because he is Lord of all yet he humbled himself to save the lowly. If our Lord humbled himself to become a servant of all, we therefore, in light of this good news, should humble ourselves for the sake of our brothers and sisters in Christ. And I'll take it a step further. We should humble ourselves for the lost who need to know the glorious grace of God in Christ. And they will not hear it unless we go out and serve them. So we need to practically submit to the Lordship of Jesus. And that begins with our attitudes being transformed. That's what verses 3 and 4 say. If you know what Christ has done, if you have the mind of Christ, if you recognize what He's done, then do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Since Jesus is Lord, we do these things. Doing these things do not make Jesus Lord. 
He has always been Lord, always will be Lord. But, but for the sake of His glorious name, we respond to His Lordship personally and practically. And then in our text this morning, we do it corporately as a church. This whole context of chapter 2 is written to the church as a body responding to the revelation of Christ's humiliation. In 2.11, we see that God, God reacts to Jesus' eternal condition as Lord with a gracious revelation. A gracious revelation. A glorious revelation. 2.11 says, Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And here's, here's the glorious revelation that comes through the revelation here of Jesus' eternal condition. We'll do this to the glory of God the Father. Every tongue's confessing that Jesus Christ, the God-man, the man Jesus Christ, was the Son of God. We will testify to this, and He is Lord over all things. We'll do so to the glory of God the Father who sent Him to be our Savior. In 2.11, we learn that, that God the Father reacts to this. He reacts to Jesus' eternal condition in this statement that He is Lord. He reacts to this by giving us this, this glorious revelation, which, which is basically the consummation of Jesus becoming man and dying in our place and being raised up in exaltation to the highest place possible as Lord, being recognized there. All of that is for the purpose of God's glorification. What's the chief end of man? Is to glorify God and enjoy His grace forever. And that grace comes to us through Christ. God the Son who willfully humbled Himself and joyfully submitted to death in our place because this was God's sovereign and eternal plan. The revelation of the Lord Jesus' humiliation his exaltation, and man's salvation demand God the Father's glorification. Demands it according to what it says in Galatians. Go with me there. Galatians 4, 4. God's love for us is the source of our redemption. Galatians 4, 4 tells it that God is the source of all this good news. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. God is the source of our redemption here. It's God's love that's manifest to us through God the Son's incarnate humiliation. God the Son comes willfully to honor His Father. They're co-equals in this work. Yet there is this beauty and this redemptive love that they have for one another that would magnify itself through the redemption of sinners. So God the Father and God the Son and the Spirit, according to this text, are working together for our redemption. But lest we think that it's always Jesus saving us from this wrathful God in the Old Testament, we need to understand that it is God the Father who is sending forth His Son and His Spirit to save and to sanctify His people so that on the last day we'll see how glorious our God is through the work of His Son and the sanctifying work of the Spirit in our life. 
This revelation of God's grace demands God's praise. It demands God's glorification. And one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess to what we are now blessed with. So we should respond to that now. Thankfully and joyfully. Because this was God's eternal revelation that we are now rejoicing in. I want to show you why, why we should rejoice in this this morning. I'm going to give you a number of headings here. I'm going to go back and repeat them as I go through it, but just listen to this for a second. Write some of this down if you can. We'll go back over each one. We need to rejoice over this revelation because in Genesis 3.15, God whispered His glorious revelation. In Isaiah 46.8-13, God promised this glorious revelation. In Acts 4, 26-30, God manifested this glorious revelation. In Revelation 19, 6-16, God consummated this glorious revelation. And I want us to see this because this is why we bow before Him now as believers and why we are transformed by this revelation practically and personally and corporately as a church body. This has been God's desire from the beginning. He is to receive all praise through His glorious revelation. And again, that glorious revelation was first whispered in Genesis 3.15. In Genesis 3.15, it says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is the Proto-Euangelion. This is the first evangel. The first bit of good news whispered in the Bible. Adam and Eve had sinned against God. And God said, Through your sin, I'll bring forth a Redeemer. I'll bring forth, through the seed of the woman, a man. And He will defeat the enemy. He will defeat the enemy by crushing His head. Though He will be bruised. Yet he will conquer. This is the first glorious revelation that we see of God's grace. And it's whispered here. It's not detailed. It's whispered. It's given to us in a progressive revelation throughout the Old Testament. In Isaiah 46, in Isaiah 46, 8 to 13, we have God's glorious revelation promised. It's promised here. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. There's none like me, he says, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart, you who are far from righteousness. I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off, and my salvation will not delay. I will put my salvation in Zion for Israel my glory. This is the promise that God had made a decree from the beginning. Not in response to Adam and Eve's sin, but before Adam and Eve sinned. 
And he will bring it to pass. Which What he will bring to pass is here spoken of as redemption, as salvation for his glory. God has promised it. It will come to pass. God will be glorified through his revelation. We see that continuing to be expanded and now manifested in the book of Acts in the New Testament. Acts 4, Acts 4, 26 to 30, tells us that we, we have God's glorious revelation manifested through Christ's incarnation. Here's the revelation of what God has done, what God had decreed and whispered, what God had promised and provided here. Here in verse 26, it says, The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His anointed. That's Messiah. That's Jesus. For truly, in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Hmm. And now, Lord, look upon their hearts and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. This is God's glorious revelation manifested. The Lord, the conquering King who was promised in Genesis 3.15, the one who had already decreed all things in Isaiah 46, He was manifested here in this text. The Lord became the servant. The Lord became the Savior of sinners. But that's not where it ends. In Revelation 19.6, to 16, we have God's glorious revelation consummated, accomplished, if you will. This means, as we look at these things, this means that this revelation demands God's glorification. When you see this, that He whispered a promise to us, He manifested that promise to us in Christ, and now one day we see in the future here through this text that it will be consummated, it will be accomplished completely, and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess what we rejoice in Every Sunday, when I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. It has It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. (laughs) I just can't help but think, John is just caught up in the revelation. He's not even writing anymore. And the angel has to shake him. Write this down. Write this down. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Then... Then 
I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name. Hmm. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe, dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty on his robe and on his thigh. He has a name. He has a name written. King of kings and Lord of lords. This is the consummation of God's glorious grace. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess to the glory of God the Father who sent His Son to be our substitutionary Savior that He is worthy of all praise and all exaltation. And for those who do not do so willfully and joyfully, they will do so by God's power authoritatively here. Judicially. Under the sharp sword of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Guys, this is who we serve. This is a revelation of Jesus and the consummation of God's eternal plan for each of you who have repented and trusted in Him. You're going to be there following Jesus on white horses. You're going to be there at this day. You're going to see this. I can't help but read that verse there in verse 14 and just think about the reality of being a disciple of Jesus. You'll even follow Him into battle. A battle against the world. And I can't help but spiritualize that just a little bit and carry that over to us today. Are we followers of Jesus willing to face the world with our conquering King ahead of us? Declaring His Lordship through our sanctification. Through our uniqueness, our distinctions as His followers. Are we uniquely setting apart our lives and confessing with our tongues and bowing our knees before His Lordship as a church, personally, practically, corporately. One day everyone will agree with us that Jesus, the eternal Son of God, is Lord. They will see what we have seen by God's grace. They will see the glorious revelation of grace. They'll see it manifest in the flesh. But for the lost, He'll be their judge. For the redeemed, He is our Lord and our Savior who is worthy of all praise and all obedience and all homage here on earth. Again, personally, having our hearts bowed low in humility to, to serve those He loves. Practically, considering others in the church and the lost more important than our own personal gain and comforts. And corporately gathering together to grow in the truth and the knowledge and the wisdom of Christ so we can evangelize the lost and worship the King of glory here with the church. 
One day everyone will see the one that we profess the name of practically and personally and corporately. So how does that affect us? I mean, one day everyone will see who you say you love now here on earth. They will see Him in His glorious state. But do they see Him in His Lordship in your life? What should be our corporate reaction to God's glorious revelation? What should be our corporate reaction as a church family? I think Paul tells us in Philippians 2, 12 to 16. But in particular, in verses 15 to 16. I think that our corporate reaction as a church family should be active sanctification. Let's look at the text. In Philippians 2, I'm going to read from 12 down to 16. I think the corporate reaction to God's revelation of Christ's incarnation, humiliation, exaltation, should be our active sanctification. Because that's exactly what he seems to be implying in 12 through 16 in light of this great truth that's been revealed to them in verses 8 through 11. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That means with reverential awe, cultivate the reality of God's saving grace that redeemed you from the pit and brought you into the kingdom of light. Manifest that. Work it out. Cultivate it. Bring it forth. If you had a garden, you're, you're planting seeds and you're watching the, the, the plants grow up, and you cultivate it, you help it, you remove the debris and the weeds so that it'll grow well. You fertilize it, you feed it. He's saying that here. Just as you've always obeyed. Now, he's not saying they're perfect, okay? He's not. He's saying, look, I know this is your desire. Remember Romans 7, Paul said, I, I, I want to do what's right, but I don't do what's right. And my, my flesh and my spirit, they battle back and forth and back and forth. But I want to be right. I have a new relationship with Christ. That means I have a new relationship with sin. I hate it because God hates it. And Jesus paid for it. So he says, cultivate that. Work that out. Help that to come forth. Bring up the fruit of what God's planted. That's what he's saying here. He's not saying earn your salvation, but he's saying in light of God's redeeming love in Christ who incarnated himself, even to the point of death, even death on a cross, stir up this reality, this revelation with fear and with trembling. God said your sins were so bad that only his son could atone for you. Let that move you. That's what he's saying. Let that move you to rejoicing. Let that move you to evangelism. Let that move you to sanctification, to love and good works for the glory of the God who planned your redemption. He says, here's why you do that, verse 13. Here, this is the good news for us. It's not about us working this all out. It's about God working in us through Christ. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Isn't that good news? God wants to be praised. God deserves all praise and glorification. So he says, I'm going to make sure I get it. I'm going to work it into you. I'm going to give you my desire. I'm going to give you my revelation. I'm going to give you my truth. I'm going to give you my church. I'm going to give you my love. So that when you see all these things and they come together and you cultivate these things, you'll see that it's God's will that's working out in your life for his good pleasure. He wants that in us. And we want to give that to him. But this sinful world and the flesh fights us. 
That's why we need his revelation constantly as a church. That's what sanctifies us. There's nothing better to sanctify a sinner than the gospel of Jesus Christ. The cross is the source of sanctification. As we contemplate the Savior hanging upon the tree in our place, condemned, cursed by His Father on our behalf, can we entertain sinful, lustful thoughts? No. They must be nailed there with Him because they were. Therefore, we flee from these things. We confess our sins. We repent of our sins. And we run back again to His glorious grace that's exhibited on the cross where the Lord of glory was crucified in our place. That's act of sanctification. The reason I used the term act of sanctification was because I think that's the only reaction that God expects from those that He's redeemed through Christ's incarnation. I think when we understand the revelation of God's grace, this is the only reaction that is possible for the saint. Active sanctification. Our, our reaction to God's grace should affect our manner of life. That's Paul's argument here. If you looked at what Christ has done in His humiliation, and God, how He responded to that in His exaltation, then this should affect you through your reaction, your manner of life should be transformed personally, practically, corporately. We saw that in 12 through 13. Our personal lives, our personal manner of life should be transformed and we should be those who would humble ourselves due to God's revelation of His grace. We should practically, in verse 14, submit to God's directions with joy. Look what it says in verse 14. Don't you love that verse? Do all things without grumbling or questioning. You know what he's talking about in the context? Paul is writing from a prison in Rome for being an ambassador for Christ. He's compelling the Philippians to stand firm, hold fast to the word of life. He means hold fast as evangelists, as disciples, as witnesses. And do that without any grumbling or questioning whether you go through persecution or joy. That's the context for this. The broader context is this. If you are a son or daughter of God, you're a child of God, face whatever difficulties you have in your life without grumbling or questioning because God is in charge of your life. He is Lord. If He sends difficult circumstances, it's for your good and His glory. And you know what? He's at work in them for your good and His glory. The reaction to God's grace is seems to affect or should affect us in a very particular way. We see it kind of detailed a little more there in verse 15 and 16. The reaction to God's revelation of grace through Christ should affect our manner of life corporately as a body of believers. It should affect us by revealing that we are God's people through our sanctification. See, if we're redeemed, it should manifest itself in such a way that the world around us will see us like a candle in the darkness. It will stand out. We are to reveal that we are His children through our sanctification. He set us apart for redemption and sanctification. Look what it says in 15 to 16. He says, do all these things without grumbling or questioning. Here's the reason why in verse 15, that you may be blameless. Blameless means to, to be without accusation of wrongdoing. 
Do all these things because this is God's will for your sanctification. This is God, God's will for your testimony. Do all of this. Face difficulties. Face prison. Face death. Face persecution. Face sickness without grumbling or questioning so that you'll be blameless without an accusation of being a complainer and a whiner and one who really doesn't believe there's a sovereign God in the universe controlling all things. Do this with absolute trust and assurance that God is your Savior, your Redeemer, and your Master. So that you'll be blameless and innocent, children of God. So you're going to be distinct from the world by your attitude toward sin, persecution, sickness, suffering. You're going to be without blemish, he says, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Without blemish means to be unstained by the world. You will be unstained. You'll, you'll do this without a stain of the world being marked upon you. In other words, you'll be distinct from the world. You're marked out for God. He puts us in the world, but we're not of the world. We're not perfect. Yet, by God's grace, we're different. Because of God's grace through Christ, we're unique. We're without blemish. We should live lives that are markedly different than those in the world because of our Savior's love for us and God's grace. We are to testify to the power of the gospel through our transformed lives. If the gospel doesn't transform a sinner, that sinner has not believed the gospel. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation, and that leads to sanctification, which is also part of His eternal plan. Look in verse 15, it says we, we do what we do, we, we live differently, we are marked out differently because we're in a twisted and crooked generation. You know, when you see something that's pure and white amidst foul and dark and filthy things, you, you know it's, it's special, right? That's what he's saying. You are to be special in this dark and twisted world. Holiness should distinguish the children of God in a crooked and twisted generation. He says, because we're among those who are like this. He says, among whom you shine as lights in the world. We are lights in the darkness, pointing to the Lord Jesus. We're pointing to Jesus' accomplishments in us. We're lights in the darkness, pointing to Jesus' accomplishments and God's grace. And we do that by what it says in verse 16, holding fast to the word of life. It doesn't mean we're holding on to the word of life. What it means is we're holding it up before the world. This is our life. It's Christ. We hold forth the word of life as the source of our life. It's our testimony. Holding forth. We're revealing that the gospel of Jesus Christ transforms sinners so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Paul's simply saying, if you're a believer, you will be uniquely marked out by God as a child that belongs to Him. You'll be without blemish. You'll be blameless. You'll be like a light in the darkness. You'll be holding fast and clinging to the word of life as your source of life and your revelation to the lost. We do that because of what it says in 13, because it's God who's working in us. He wants to be glorified. He wants to be glorified through us. We're broken vessels, but He wants to be glorified through us. So that whatever we do that's blameless or without blemish or that's glorious actually is attributed to His work. 
So that the surpassing glory belongs to Him, not to us. To Him be the glory in the church. That's the proper reaction to our salvation. Let me me take you through a, a string of scriptures I need you to see this morning. I think it's very important and appropriate in this text. Let me, let me give you this to write down. The call to salvation is not separate from the call to sanctification. The call to salvation is not separate from the call to sanctification. Sanctification, we know, is progressive. We're not instantaneously, practically sanctified, though in heaven God has set us apart. But in our election, in our salvation, we are given by God Himself the grace and the Spirit and the truth to be sanctified, set apart for His purposes. So the call to salvation is not separate from the call to sanctification, and I want to prove that scripturally by looking at Acts 26. Acts 26, verse 13. Now this is the Apostle Paul giving a recap of his conversion story, which is great because when he gives his testimony, he preaches the gospel. But he's giving this to the king, and here's what he says, at midday... O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. Here's Here's why he says, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. The call to salvation and his testimony and God's purpose for him is not separated from the call to sanctification. Jesus says, I set you apart to be this gospel preacher to declare this, that God will save sinners and as they turn from their sins, they'll turn to sanctification. They'll turn and be set apart unto me for my purposes. And we see this again in Romans 8, 29. He says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Those that were foreknew, those who were predestined to salvation, those who are elect, are also elect to be conformed to the image of God's son, Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Now that will be finalized in the consummation of all things in the end in heaven, in the heavenly state. But he says, you are being conformed here to his image because of what he's done. He saved you. So it's not separated from salvation. It's part of salvation. It's the fruit of salvation. It's what manifests your redemption. It's what gives you assurance of salvation. 1 Corinthians 6, 1 Corinthians 6, 9. He says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Basically, he says this in verses 9 and 10. 
if you live an active lifestyle of unrepentant sin, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. If there is no transformation, if there is no desire for transformation, and you do this habitually without repentance, you're not going to heaven. That's what he says. Now listen, we could look at that list and every one of us could find multiple sins in that text that applies to us. The difference between the redeemed and the unredeemed is, though, we see these sins and we hate these things. We turn from these things, sometimes daily, sometimes weekly, sometimes monthly. But we, we struggle, we hate them, we turn, we don't want to live in them. That's the sign of the redeemed. They've been transformed, their desires are renewed. And he says, such were some of you, verse 11. And such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. He doesn't make a distinction here. Washing is talking about your redemption. Washed by the blood of Christ. Set apart for God's purposes because you've been declared righteous in God's sight through Jesus Christ by His Spirit. 1 Thessalonians 4, 4, 3 through 5. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. See the distinction here? The Gentiles live in the passions of their lust. The unbeliever lives in these habitually and without repentance. He says... Here's the will of God for you. If you're redeemed, this is the will of God for you. You be sanctified, set apart, abstain from these things. That's the distinction between the converted and the unconverted. Listen, at this point I just need to make an aside here, okay? Biblical salvation is not a mere confession. No one is saved by their confession. We're saved by God's sovereign grace through the work of Christ. Salvation is a miracle of regeneration that leads to joy-driven sanctification. It's not just an outward external act. It's an inward transformation. It's monergistic. It's the work of God alone. It's the work of God that was brought to us through the redeeming blood of Christ. And so because of that, we want to honor our God who saved us from our sins. And so active sanctification, it may not be the perfection of our life, but it's the direction we want to go in our life. It may, may not be our possession at this moment, but it's our passion as Christians. We want to live holy lives in light of our Savior who died for us because of God's grace toward us. But there'll be some sort of evidence to that in our life as Christians. If all you had is a confession and there is no transformation, you need to examine yourself to see if you're truly born again. I will appeal to you in the name of Jesus to do that this morning. Do that because God's grace saves and sanctifies His children. And that grace is active. And that grace is evidential. A mere confession of salvation cannot save anyone. But it can do one thing. It can lead to false conversions. False converts have no desire for holiness. Matter of fact, we have a term for that in theology. It's called an antinomian. A licentious person. A person who is against God's rulership over their life. 
Yet they, they made a confession. They said the words. They believed in Jesus when they were five, and they made this confession. Yet their lives have lived in complete antinomianistic sin against God and His Lordship their whole life. That's a false convert. That's an intellectual assent, but no transformation in the heart. On the opposite side of that, we have those who, at least on the outside, look righteous, look sanctified. We have these externally self-righteous, obedient-looking people, yet they don't truly submit themselves to the lordship of Jesus either. They're false converts because they basically say, well, Jesus started this work, I'll finish the work through my works. That's legalism. They don't trust in Jesus' completed work. They have a works-based system of religion. They may have said a prayer, but they said, now here's what I do once I say the prayer. I have to actively do these things or I'll lose my salvation. Or I have to actively do these things to gain my salvation. The Judaizers did that in the book of Galatians. They said, you've got to believe in Jesus, but to be a really good Christian, you've got to be circumcised. Well, people do that today with all kinds of things. You want to be a good Christian, you've got to be at church every Sunday. That'll save you. You've got to give money to the church. That'll save you. That'll give you some merits. It's funny how we've pulled in some Roman Catholic ideas into the Protestant church through these works-based legalistic systems. These false converts, they deny the lordship of Jesus as the authority or his sufficiency. We see an illustration of that. Let me show this to you. In Luke 6, the false convert who, who denies Jesus' authority is seen here in Luke 6. This is the licentious person. Luke 6, 46. The licentious person, the antinomian who is against God's rulership, denies the lordship of Jesus' authority over their lives practically here. Because they truly, truly do not want to submit to his direction. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. The rock is the work of Christ. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house, and it could not Shake it, because it was well built, because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. Those who deny the lordship of Jesus and his authority over their lives and do not do what he says, do not submit to his leadership and his rulership over their lives according to his word, they will be destroyed on that great day when he arrives again in glory. But those who hear him and do what he says give evidence that they're built on the rock of Christ Jesus, that their foundation is the grace of God that brought them redemption. And they respond by obedience, by loving to do what the Lord Jesus commands them. Why do we evangelize? Why do we abstain from sexual immorality? To glorify God for sending His Son to be our Redeemer. Because He told us to. And that's sufficient. He's Lord of all. 
The one who denies the lordship of Jesus' sufficiency is the one who says, I have to earn my salvation based on my works or my ongoing works to satisfy God's requirements. That person is mentioned in Matthew 7. And I fear that this is probably the most, will be the most enlightening text in glory, yet too late for many people. Matthew 7, 21-23 illustrates those who deny the sufficiency of Jesus as Lord. And notice very carefully what it says in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now that's, that's serious stuff. Lord, Lord, I did this. Lord, Lord, I did that. Lord, Lord, I did this. What they're not doing is saying, Lord, you did this. You accomplished this. And because of that, I wanted to do this. No, they're saying, I did this. I did that. There's, there's no... We need to understand this. There's no biblical category for those who want Jesus as a Savior only and yet deny His Lordship over them personally, practically, or corporately. There's no category except one in the Bible, and that is that of an unbeliever. There is no taking Jesus as your Savior and divorcing Him from your rulership. He is Savior and Lord. And even the unbelievers one day will see this. Believers, believers personally confess that Jesus is Lord reverentially. We see that in Romans 10, 6-13. Whoever confesses Jesus as Lord and believes in their heart, they'll be saved. In light of the context, this is absolutely amazing. Written to the church at Rome, Paul writes, if you confess that Jesus is Lord and not Caesar, that means you must be saved because you, if you don't bow before Caesar, you will die. And if when they say to bow to Caesar, you don't bow and you say, no, Jesus is my Lord, that confession testifies to redemption. You do this reverentially. See, Romans 10 has been so abused and misused, it's not a place you take some unbeliever to and you get them to repeat this and they're saved. In light of the context, the only people who would say that Jesus is Lord and believe it in their heart are those who are ready to die for Jesus right then and there. That's the context. Believers will do that. Believers will also practically submit to Jesus' Lordship joyfully. We saw that in Philippians too. You see that in John 15, 1-16. John 15, 1-16, Jesus says, if you belong to me, you're going to produce fruit. You're going to produce much fruit because basically he says, I planted it there. You're going to do what I said. You're going to obey me as Lord. You're going to magnify me because I saved you. You're going to submit to my directions. You'll do what I command. If you're saved and you're not willing to confess Jesus as Lord reverentially and submit to His leadership and guidance joyfully, examine your heart. Are you really redeemed? Not in perfection here. 
There's not one of us in this room who has failed to confess Jesus as Lord reverentially when we had an opportunity to testify to the gospel. But you wanted to, or you wanted to afterwards. There's not one of us in this room who hasn't fail to submit to God's directions for us, Jesus' commands for us to submit to others and serve others and sacrifice for others, yet we failed to, but in our hearts we wanted to. People in this church have done things that I know that they've wanted to do maybe for a long time, but now they're, they're having opportunities, they're learning to do it, and they're stepping out, and I can see the joy in you because you're submitting to what the text of Philippians is saying, what First John is saying. That's what believers do. Believers will personally confess, practically submit, and they'll corporately testify that Jesus is Lord and will do so honorably. Look what it says in 1 Peter 2, 2 9, speaking to us as believers corporately. This is what we'll do. We will honorably testify that Jesus is Lord in our lives as a church this way. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Why? Well, verse 10 tells you, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. That is the impulse of sanctification. Because I was separated by my sins from God, and now I've been redeemed by the blood of Christ because I have His mercy and I'm His child now. I want to proclaim His excellencies in this dark and dingy world. He says in verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that, here's the reason we live sanctified lives, set-apart lives, God-exalting lives, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. They will see that you are blameless, without blemish, lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life on the day of visitation. Though they, not, they don't recognize it now, on the day of visitation, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess to the glory of God the Father that Jesus was our Lord because we proclaim His excellencies through our unique lives, through our profession, through our testimony, through our edification. That's what we're called to do. We're called to do this personally and practically and corporately. And we should react to God's revelation and Christ's humiliation and His exaltation by pursuing God's will for our lives as Christians humbly and dutifully and with our testimony. We have a mission here on this earth. In light of Philippians 2, 5-16, through 16, I think that, that we as a church are called on to bow and confess to the world that Jesus is Lord through our active sanctification because of this. Because that is our mission. That is our mission. That's why you're saved and left here on earth. Because we live in a place and a time that needs to hear the gospel according to Jude 4. It's the kind of place we live. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. He says, in light of this, look, church, he's writing, Jude's writing to this church and says, in light of this, 
You need to be uniquely set apart, sanctified. Look what it says further on in the chapter here to verse 17. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life, and have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling in all this work, okay, in all that work, the one who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. This is our mission. This is our mission. There are people who are doing this. There are ungodly, licentious people who distort the grace of our God, and we are to stand firm against them. We are to speak against them because they cause divisions in the church. And we are to build up one another in the most holy faith. Hold to the words of life. Keep ourselves in the love of God. How do you do that? How do you keep yourselves in the love of God? You look at what it looks like on the cross. That's how you keep yourself in the love of God. Knowing that He saved you so that you could go tell others about the eternal life that we have in Christ. Snatching them out of the fire. Showing them that God can redeem sinners to the gospel of Christ. That's what we need to pursue out of thankfulness this morning. I pray that's your desire. I pray if it's not your desire that this morning you will repent and you will turn from selfishness and look to Christ. Father, I pray that you would cause me daily to repent of selfishness. Father, I pray that as we look to the cross of Christ, we'll see the root of our salvation and that will produce the fruit of our salvation. Lord, I pray that the fruit of our salvation would, would magnify Jesus' humiliation and His exaltation. I pray that it would magnify His willingness to come to this earth to die as a, as a servant of God in our place. To receive Your wrath, receive our curse upon Himself, so that we could receive His inheritance, so that we could be granted His righteousness, and that we could stand before You blameless and unashamed with joy on the last day, knowing that we have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb and that we will forever be Your children. Lord, I pray that those truths would, would move us away from selfishness, sin, and the world and into our sanctification with joy. Lord, I, I want to magnify You. We, as a church, want to glorify You, our Father, through the work of Your Son, Jesus, our Savior. We can't do that on our own. That's why I'm so thankful for, for Philippians 2.13. We know that You are at work in us and willing our hearts to do what Your revelation tells us to do. We know that You have given us Your Spirit to secure us and Your church to encourage us. We pray that we would 
walk in those truths and rejoice over those gifts so that, again, that we could be your ambassadors here on earth, uniquely set apart for the glory of your great name. Jesus, we love you. It will take eternity to thank you. But we want to start thanking you now. We want to start thanking you here where we're at because you are transforming sinners like us into vessels of glory prepared for the future in your presence. What, a, what an amazing God you truly are. Thank you, Jesus, for your love, for your work, for your joy that we now have by God's grace. In Christ's name I pray this. Amen.